Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode is brought to you by Frank and Oak. Go to frankandoak.com slash Canada. You'll get 15% off men's or women's clothing, or you'll get any outfit, pants and a shirt for $59, usually like $110. Once again, it's frankandoak.com slash Canada. Manisha Krishnan. Hey, Jesse. Writer Advice. Welcome back. Thank you. I guess we got to talk about this batshit stuff with Trump. Yeah. And BuzzFeed and CNN and urine. Um, we'll talk about John Furlong. We'll sure. talk about... Your series on pedophiles. Yeah, we'll sorry. talk about uh, John Kay and MRAs. It's just, it's a big, huge dumpster of atrocities. Uh, good to have you back. Yeah, good to be here. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Tim Jacques, Ev, Andrew, Lisa Akemi Wilson, James Clare, Emily Martin, Kristen Tuff, and Rick Dolishny. Rick, why did you decide to be awesome? Because you guys provide a media deconstruction that I can tell you having worked in the business is really refreshing and totally on track. Listeners to the show are, are getting some inside information that's incredibly valuable. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks. Manisha, did we talk about FreshBooks when you were here last? Yeah, I think you asked me if I'd ever been a freelancer and I was like, no. Right. Yeah. So I probably shouldn't ask that again. Well, should you ever have need for any kind of accounting solution, Manisha, in the future of your career or endeavors, I would like to recommend FreshBooks to you. It's the solution if you are a person who is managing a freelance practice or starting a small business. It's like your own accounting department. They've rebuilt the thing from top to bottom. It is stupid easy. Stupid easy. It gets you paid quicker. Gives you a lot more free time to work on the thing that actually matters to you. Try it out. If you need something like this, what have you been waiting for? Go try it out because it's free to try it out when you go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. And if you do go from the free trial to being a customer, tell them who sent you. Since you're attacking us, can you give us a question? Go ahead. President-elect, since you are attacking our news organization, can you give us a chance? Your organization You are attacking our news organization. Can you give us a chance to ask a question, sir? Go ahead. Sir, don't be rude. Can you give us a question? Don't be rude. No, I'm not going to give you a question. I'm you, not going to give you a can question. You sta- can you stay categorically? You are fake news. Sir, Go ahead. can you stay categorically that nobody... No, Mr. President-elect, that's not Go appropriate. Ahead. Okay, what what do we even... like? We're supposed to talk about just Canadian media stuff, but the world is exploding, or so it always seems, and maybe it's nothing, mm-hmm. but it, it was just minutes ago we saw the president-elect ban CNN 
from asking questions. Yeah, called it out for being a fake news organization. All joking aside, though, it was sort of a scary look at to how he's going to manage his interactions with press and the potential threats to, you know, access to the president in during his term. It confirms a lot of the worst fears, you know, and this whole idea like, yeah, he was sort of this madman in, in the campaign and blaming the press was an effective tactic. But once he's the president, president has to be accountable. CNN is a very established mainstream. It's how a lot of people get their news. You can't just not take questions from CNN. Uh, that's what he did. It's crazy to see this fake news thing start as this revelation, like largely through Craig Silverman's reporting mm-hmm. at BuzzFeed, a very specific thing that there were these websites that were just making stuff up to get clicks and then it getting appropriated and turned on like it's just used for whatever purpose you want i don't know like like everything is happening so fast my head is spinning it just this morning i woke up to this stuff and all the journalists were mad at buzzfeed for printing the dossier Mm -hmm. you know and i'm like well if this stuff has been circulating in washington and in the media for for like weeks and weeks maybe months and it was deemed important enough whether it's true or false for it to appear in a summarized form in an intelligence dossier that was presented by senior intelligence officers to both Obama and Trump, suggesting that at least Russia thinks or wants us to think that they have compromising information on the president-elect, that sounds a lot like news to me. Yeah, and I think that it's a super complex issue, but I think the fact that it was reported to President Obama and to Trump, that in and of itself is news. However, I don't know or I wouldn't want to have to make the decision of whether or not to publish all the allegations that were in there. But on the flip side, if you just say this was circulated to our, or, you know, Trump and Obama were briefed on this and then you don't give readers any other information about what's in the dossier, that's extremely annoying as well. It's super weird. I get where BuzzFeed's coming from. I get where Ben Smith made his decision. It's like CNN reported this, but they, they went that way. They said there's these crazy allegations that, you know, some of them look dodgy. We don't know where it came from, but we do know that it has been presented to the president and the president-elect by senior intelligence. And everybody in Washington knows what this stuff is. Everybody in the media has been reading it, but we're not going to tell you. That traditional gatekeeper role doesn't seem to be where it's at right now. So I guess, predictably, everybody turned on BuzzFeed. That, that, you know, and, you know, it's like, well, we did this responsibly. You did it irresponsibly. Mm-hmm. And then within, like, hours, that internal discussion makes it all that much easier for Trump to blacklist CNN for their work on that same story. And now we've lent credibility to that because we've essentially consented that there's something wrong with publishing this stuff. You know? Yeah, I mean, and I think they said it in their own um, when they released it or in a statement, they said that these claims could well be untrue and they couldn't substantiate them. I think the thing is with journalists, a lot of the times we're privy to information and allegations that the public doesn't know about. And they may be super juicy, but generally you don't publish unless you have some way of corroborating, verifying and it just didn't seem like that was there. Everything is completely context dependent. Mm-hmm, when mm-hmm. Trump leveled accusations at Obama for having not been born, the very fact that it was Trump accusing Obama was newsworthy. So whatever crazy bullshit he was he was throwing at them, you're going to report that because of where it's coming from. Yeah. So like, it's not like you're like, okay, we went out. I mean, sure, people tried to go out and verify the birther claims, and in fact, because you know when you try to verify something, it's not just about verifying it. It's like you can actually debunk it and. There was not a shred of evidence to support the birther thing, and yet everybody, of course, went ahead and reported on that because of where it was coming from. 
you make the exact same argument here. Like, you know, that was the inciting thing. This has been circulating for months. It was when senior intelligence gave a summary of the dossier to Obama and Trump. Mm -hmm. Once that's happened, that alone, whatever is in the actual allegations, now it's a news story, right? Yeah, it is a news story that that happened. But is it a news story are the allegations then fair game to publish as is when they couldn't be independently verified or corroborated or debunked like in any significant way? Yeah. I, I mean, I guess I would say that you just want to give the public as much information as you can, which Buzz, BuzzFeed actually like they led before you even get into the dossier. They're like, we haven't been able to verify this. And in fact, there are some things that are false in here. Now here's the information. And some people call that wildly irresponsible. Trying to come up with what the Bible is, is this like ongoing thing that nobody can settle on. But what is happening in a real politic way is that these these kind of academic J school discussions about what, you know, what you should be doing, what you shouldn't, and every shop has different rules. Mm-hmm. It's just weakening the solidarity of the press to this point where like uh, Tom Skoka made the point that like as soon as Trump said to CNN, you're fake news, I'm not taking your question. It was like the responsibility of every other reporter there to ask the exact same question. Yeah. Which is like a cool like kind of stoic concept that would never in a million years happen these days. Like we don't stand together that way. No, weren't there people clapping after he called out CNN? Yeah. And I don't know. And I don't know if that was other reporters. Like, I was confused on that because I just heard the audio. People were tweeting that he had some of his people in the audience Mm, to do that. Like, we're just in such a haze these days. Like, what the fuck is going on? I was thinking the same thing, though, when that CNN reporter was struggling to get his question out. I was thinking, you know, the other reporters, like, this is an important question for him to answer. So it's like the other reporters, you know, should give him that opportunity or should, you know, make Trump be accountable for that. Yeah. He said that there will be repercussions for BuzzFeed. Okay. Other than calling them a failing pile of garbage? <laughs> like, that's a meme. <laughs> yeah. Paul McLeod was quick to say that's not fair at all. We're a successful pile of garbage. It's uh, true, which is true, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, they missed some projections, but they're still doing all right. I feel like this question of accusations and when to print them is going to be our theme today. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about John Furlong. I think that the actual inciting news hook for why this is back on our radar is like, it just seems so trivial and silly and who cares if John Furlong speaks at some academic luncheon mm-hmm. or not. And yet that's what has brought this like kind of raging back. UBC has definitely been struggling with their image lately um, in terms of how they've handled sexual assaults on campus, the whole Stephen Galloway thing. And then now this, just the fact that they don't seem to have it together in terms of who's making those decisions. I immediately get a little bit concerned when people talk about, you know, banning certain controversial figures from speaking. So Gomeshi's lawyer, Marie Hennen, uh, there was a university out east that she was supposed to speak at. And there was a movement like there was a big push back about that. And I have an, an issue with that because I think that just because someone's controversial, it doesn't mean that we should, you know, ban them outright from speaking publicly. Furlong is different, though, in that he's had a lot of, you know, really serious allegations, um, you know, printed about him. So I don't know. It's it, it really seems like they should have had their discussion together before they made the decision of whether or not to bring him on. And that's really added to this whole controversy. They're flip-flopping. I share your discomfort with, like, banning speakers, mm-hmm. you know? In the case of Furlong, it's, there's a context question. Like, Furlong does not want to talk about the allegations. He does not want to talk about his controversies. He wants to be hailed as a hero. He wants to be glorified as if all this stuff never happened. I think UBC cannot provide a stage for him uh, and and in that context without just 
delivering an incredible insult to 45 indigenous people who say that they witnessed either it happening to them or to somebody else, this guy abusing children in his care. Mm -hmm. Every time his name comes up in any context, we uh, have to kind of like summarize the controversy itself and put it forward for people. What side do you want here? Is mm-hmm. this is this a, a, a heroic and uh, an innocent man falsely accused who's had his life destroyed by some vigilante journalist and social media mob justice backed by, uh, you know, indigenous people out for a paycheck, which is which is one narrative. And that is his narrative. Uh, or is this a guy who has actively hidden years of his past during which people have made some very credible allegations of behavior, which while it might not have been uncommon at the time, certainly is disastrous for, for, for their lives, if true. So that story gets retold. Yeah. You, you know? Yeah, yeah. And just dealing with like the facts of the retelling, the media's got it like wrong. It's wrong. Like mm-hmm. the, the, the National Post got it wrong. Uh, like the National Post reported in summarizing this, a bunch of just incorrect facts about how this all happened, all of which supported Furlong's narrative. Right. In terms of sort of almost declaring him as being innocent uh, when the reality is that certain allegations were never tested in a criminal court. In order to believe his side of it, you have to believe like a lot of stuff. You have to believe that Laura Robinson was able to somehow get all of these people to make false accusations about him. And how could she have possibly done that? We're talking about 45 people. Well, his story was that like they all had false memory syndrome or they were out for a payday. They all read this flyer that was in the uh, Burns Lake band office that she was coming and his he was named. So like, oh, here's the guy who we have to falsely accuse. And then they all had hours to talk about it amongst themselves and collude before she arrived. Mm-hmm. That's what he put forth in his defense. That was never really tested in court. It, it came up when Laura Robinson was suing him for, for libel. It's all not true. Like it, it's demonstrated not true. And the way that I know that it's not true is that any of the people involved will tell you what actually happened. It doesn't, it doesn't, there's just, it's not substantiated, but it's been repeated in the post because it made it into this ruling. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting deference we have where like, if it's in a ruling and I've been in contact with the reporter of the post who wrote all this stuff, I'm like, was your only source on this, that ruling? Because that ruling like can be taken apart like again and again and again. And he's like, but, but here's a ruling here. It mm-hmm. is in the database of court rulings. I feel like that's almost standard practice that if it's a ruling, we don't go beyond that. We're okay with a one source story if that source is like. Yeah, that is true. Um, I think there's something a bit disingenuous when just in general with the legal system, when charges are dropped even against against someone, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that their evidence, especially when it comes to like historical abuse, sexual assault. Just because a charge is dropped or not pursued by the Crown, that doesn't mean that that person is innocent. It just means that there wasn't enough evidence there to secure a conviction. So while that person may be cleared for, you know, going on with their life, other institutions like a university or whatever you want to call it, they're not obliged to sort of bring you on board to speak to people or and treat you as if you're innocent. Within the reporting on the furlong thing, the double standard is so apparent like in the same article, you will see like when Christy Blatchford was writing about this, she writes about how Furlong had this libel case that he was like launching against Laura Robinson. And if that had gone through, all of the claims against him would have been part of that trial because mm-hmm. if she's whether she's lying or telling the truth rests on whether these accusations are credible or not. Right. And he dropped that. Mm-hmm. He said to get on with his life. 
And she yeah, presents that. Yeah, that was that. in the that was in the Globe too, in yeah. the Gary Mason's column. In Gary was, Mason's, yeah. Yeah, and it it does come across as biased. Like you're, he dropped his libel case to move on with his life, but you're not even questioning that. How do you know? How do you know it wasn't because he couldn't win? Well, and then in the same story, you've got Beverly Abraham, one of the accusers, dropping her civil claim against Furlong, also saying to get on with her life. But in her case, it's evidence that you know she didn't really have a case. She was making this stuff up. You know, that's why she dropped it. Mm-hmm. So you got two people dropping a case for the exact same stated reason. And with the indigenous woman, the motives ascribed to it are, are, are completely opposite. The Gary Mason thing needs to be touched on. I mean, Gary Mason writing in The Globe, opinion pieces, column after column mm-hmm. about John Furlong, who he wrote a book with. Yeah. And the one problem with that, or I mean, there were probably several problems with, with the, one of the most recent ones he wrote was... He kind of said that he had written that memoir, and in the course of their time spent together, he grew to think that Furlong was completely innocent. Yeah. Having gotten to know him, he has no question. That's crazy. So Mason has a financial relationship with Furlong. Mm -hmm. He also, like, look, he was the memoirist Mm -hmm. in a book. The book is about Furlong moving to Canada, and the year that he came to Canada in that book is wrong. And a two-year period of Furlong's life when he was teaching at this school where all the accusations uh, took place is not in the book. So if, in fact, any of those allegations proved to be true, then Gary Mason, who says that he had no idea about that period in Furlong's life when he was writing with him, doesn't look like a very good memoirist, doesn't (laughs) look like a very good researcher. So like his journalistic professional reputation is absolutely bound up in whether or not the accusations are true or false. You couldn't be more conflicted. Mm -hmm. You couldn't, he has a financial and reputational interest in Furlong being innocent. And yet he's using the Globe and Mail to advocate again and again. And the thing about all of this coverage is you won't read one quote of any of the accusers. None of these indigenous people. Right, yeah. Are, are, no one picked up a phone. Which is just lazy. On the lighter side of things, have you read John Kay uh, writing about men's rights activists? Yeah, I did read it. I thought it was a very superficial look at um, what this group cafe does. It wasn't really what I would consider to be a deep dive on the issue. No, I would also characterize it, you know, the, the headline was something like, is this the year that MRA gets respectable? There was a smiling picture of the founder of this Toronto-based MRA group. I, I would say that while it has all sorts of negative things about some of the members and some of the ideas, it was probably the most sympathetic mm-hmm. story I've read about the men's rights movement. What's weird is that John Semley was tweeting that John Kay spiked his earlier story that he was writing for the walrus on MRAs, which I think probably would have not been a very sympathetic story. Yeah. Only to write this sympathetic story about MRAs and about this cafe group without disclosing that his mom, Barbara Kay, is on the board of advisors of that group. Yeah, that just seems like a blatantly stupid thing to do. I mean, he's a seasoned journalist. That's a that's a pretty glaring conflict or at least perceived conflict of interest. So it just seems like something that you would obviously disclose. John Kay's position is, yes, of course, no, now that I know that, it's disclosed. What do you mean? He's saying he didn't know that his mom was on that board? Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. He said, I can't keep track of her every affiliation. Well, she tweets about like she's so supportive of that movement. It's like her baby. Dude, I know. That was my response. I was like, I was like, I, John, even I know that your mom is like affiliated with an MRA group. And he's like, yeah, but which MRA group? And then people were like, there's only one MRA group. Like, it, Your mom is on the board. 
And, um, you know, he pled ignorance to the whole thing and he added the disclosure. And like, what can you do but laugh? Like it's uh, it's it's like another John Camus adventure. That's surprising to me. I don't even think I follow his mom on Twitter, but I've definitely seen her write about this group. Um, She seems so concerned with men's issues. The plight of the young white male is like Barbara Kay's cross to bear, apparently. If John Kay was pretending to not know that, that's a ridiculous thing. Like, Mm -hmm. you're not going to get away with it. Everyone's going to point. Yeah. He obviously had a blind spot there. Yeah. That piece. Of course he did. That, that's Katie Jensen, our producer, uh, reminding us. That, so that's that's my blind spot. This became a John Kay story in the aftermath and people questioning him. But of course, it was co-written with Lauren Husser, who is an editorial fellow at The Walrus. Mm-hmm. What has happened with The Walrus? Like, it just... Uh... I don't know, because I never read it and I still don't. Shall we duly note a few things? Yeah, let's do it. Let's just duly note things for the rest of this episode. Okay. <laughs> I want to start with, uh, let me start with Creepcatchers, the series that that you just reported after uh, like, what, months of reporting. Yeah. Give us the nutshell of what this is. I thought it was fantastic work. So the nutshell is there's groups of vigilantes that have popped up across Canada and they pose as teenagers or children online, on dating sites, on Craigslist. And basically, if an adult agrees to meet up with them, they show up with their cameras, they shame them, and then they post the videos online and they accuse these people of being pedophiles. I thought it was fascinating. I've had questions about this for such a long time because it's so loaded when you designate a group of people in society to be the worst. Mm -hmm. The worst monsters, pedophiles are the worst. And you have entire like wings of law enforcement set up to do similar types of entrapments. And you, you have to start asking questions. I've always wondered about this stuff, about how we have this one group where the rules don't apply the same. Like in every other manifestation of sexuality, we seem to agree like people are not responsible for who they're attracted to. But we don't have that kind of allowance for that desire. And I understand why, and I don't want these people anywhere near my house, but like you, you cover that in your reporting. Like you profile the guy who says like, look, look, I was abused myself as a kid. Uh, I have an attraction to kids. I'll never touch a kid. Mm-hmm. And what a hell this guy's life is. And meanwhile, he's got these other people like trying to hunt him down who don't really does see much of a difference between somebody who has that attraction or who acts upon it. It's, it's uncomfortable, dark stuff. But uh, I don't know, you went there and um, people should check it out. Yeah, I think it's a it's a really interesting question. And I'm getting a lot of hatred online right now because people think that I'm pushing a pro pedophile agenda or normalizing it. Um, And I just wanted to point out in the series, the reason I talked to him is there's a huge distinction between a pedophile and a child molester, like someone who's a criminal. Yeah. And these people are extremely stigmatized. And I think it is important to share their perspective, which is that it should be a little bit easier for them to get help in a preventative sense before they act on things. But it's super controversial. In the vernacular, there is no distinction. I mean, pedophile means a child molester, I yeah. think, in, in standard usage. Yeah, absolutely true. And and then that's the thing. It's not true in yeah. reality. Duly noted. I want to duly note a story that came to my attention. Like, we miss some of the stuff that gets reported right around Christmas. And uh, mm-hmm. especially when, like, this Joseph Boyden thing blew up around Christmas. But there was... Like a follow-up thing in the globe on this whole liberal party fundraising thing. And, you know, a lot of people thought that was like 
evidence of some hypocrisy that you could, you know, kind of get cash for access to Trudeau. Other people thought it was a big non-story because that happens in politics all the time. But there was this one Globe story by Craig Offman and Nathan Vanderclip on December 23rd. Cash for access organizers sought payments that exceeded federal contribution limits. So this isn't in the realm of like, oh, I think that that's untoward or that seems a little like if that's true, like you're not allowed to give the Liberal Party of Canada more than fifteen hundred and twenty five dollars a year. Mm -hmm. And the Globe reported and nobody seemed to notice that there were discrepancies between official ticket prices to these private home fundraisers where you got to meet Justin Trudeau and the actual cost of entry. Like, What the hell does that mean? And they interview sources who say that when they were invited to these fundraisers, they were told, you can come to this fundraiser for like $5,000. Okay. Now, they haven't traced that back to the Liberal Party. These are all anonymous sources. And these are people who turned down that invitation. So it seems like this reporting only got so far. Because like, even if you did some kind of fancy footwork and like, okay, it'll be $6,000, but bring three friends and we'll mm -hmm. attribute, you know, we'll divide up. Even that breaks the rules. The, so uh, wait, sorry, what's the gist though? Was was Trudeau going to be at these events? Like they were pay, paying to have access to him or? They were paying to go to a private fundraiser where you get to meet Trudeau. And as far as the Globe was able to get it, there were invitations issued mm -hmm. from whom? It's ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Where the cost of this was not the maximum, 1525 The cost of it was more like four or 5000 Okay. Right now, we're only at the point of there being like a rule broken if you know who did this and you have evidence of it. So as far as they got it, it was just that people were given this invitation and it was a lot more money than it should have been. And I'm wondering if there isn't a lot more to this. So duly noted, look out for weird weed coverage. And one of the most egregious examples that I saw was this Calgary Herald column. It was written by a university political science professor. But basically, he was saying that weed, if you look at what's happened in BC, um, it's a great example of how things can go awry. And so he starts out the column by saying when he visited Vancouver recently, um, he had a bad steak served to him at a restaurant and his daughter was like, oh, the server is stoned. And it just gets worse and worse from there towards the end. He is conflating weed with opioid and fentanyl overdoses um, and just saying like pretty much saying like this is how thing this is how bad things can get. One has absolutely nothing to do with the other. Um, there was zero evidence to back up anything that he said. Yeah. But. And it is hilarious. It's probably the worst column I've ever read about weed. Um, it's like full-on reefer madness 2.0. Can we just figure who who? Uh... Barry Cooper writing in the Calgary Herald. I have this weird um, lingering pet peeve with the use of this one stock photo where this guy is smoking this massive spliff. And uh, every single story about weed is illustrated with a stock photo. It's been brought to my attention that it has sort of been supplanted by a different stock image Um of a guy with mime makeup smoking a joint. Okay. From some protest uh, also in BC. Yeah, it was probably from a 420 thing. I think so. I think we're going to look back on this as like 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 prohibition coverage of alcohol where every article has got like some rummy passed out in front of a speakeasy and, and you know that's that's that people who smoke weed look like mimes or have giant novelty spliffs. Yeah, I mean the cannabis community needs a major rebrand, um, but some of the mainstream media is not helping. Duly noted. Finally, Manisha, I want to uh, 
I want to duly note a story that uh, was picked up some content sharing wire thing uh, by Post Media originally in the British Telegraph. Headline reads, students demand Plato, Descartes, and other white philosophers be dropped from the curriculum. They are said to be the founding fathers of Western philosophy, whose ideas underpin civilized society. But students at a prestigious London university are demanding that figures such as Plato, Descartes, and Immanuel Kant be largely dropped from the curriculum because they are white. I am outraged. This is an assault on our basic (laughs) civilization until you get to the next graph. The School of Oriental and African Studies (laughs) Student Union is insisting that when studying philosophy, the majority of philosophers should be from Africa and Asia. I think that this idea of outrage culture is a charge that is usually levied against the progressive left, that that's who love feeling outrage Mm -hmm. and are just searching for microaggressions to get mad about. I think you could just as easily, like this story is such an act of cherry picking. You know, like for a Canadian newspaper to be running a story about the School of Oriental and African Studies Student Union, not even successfully, like they just want to have more African and Asian philosophy on their curriculum. And this is sort of used as evidence of these special snowflakes whose political correct bullshit is leading to just the destruction of the canon and the basic ideas upon which Western civilization are... Like, this is not a thing. No, it's not a thing at all. And yeah, I... That did the same thing as you when I was reading that story was looking for something like like it made it seem like the university is really considering this movement. And then I read it and I was like, OK, it's a tiny group of people, but it's an easy way to start a flame war. So, yeah, you know, there's a pleasure in having your point of view affirmed by this stuff to see the world just like gratify the way that you see the world and like, ah, look what they're doing now. And then you can talk with other people and grumble about it. And, you know. A lot of the research that's being done into this is suggesting that people don't even really care so much if it's true or not. Like, it's just that's the discourse that they want. I was thinking about this year maybe reaching out to some of my trolls, like some of the people who just categorically hate anything that I write about race or gender and trying to have a conversation, like for the purpose of a story, obviously. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, it would also be an interesting exercise. It would, but you know, the interesting thing is though, for the purpose of a story, right? Like the fact that we're all now performing discourse as opposed to having discourse, the fact that we argue in public and we know there are people watching us. So when you do butt up against somebody who doesn't share your opinion, you know, he knows that he or she knows that their homies are watching to see if they win or lose or if they can embarrass you and, and you know the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I almost feel like, like the, the problem is not bubble culture, nor is it flame culture. It's almost like argument performance culture is is it like we're too public i don't know like do we need like not safe spaces but private spaces to fight with each other yeah i think it would get really boring actually if you had coffee with a person who you were arguing with online or had a conversation with them because no one's watching at that point so you're not concentrating on getting a sick burn in and getting like a million shares and likes yeah and then you're like uncomfortably forced to like actually regard their humanity and (laughs) then it could get weird (laughs) yeah yeah Nobody wants to treat each other like human beings. No, that's awful. Um, Thanks, Manisha. That's your Canada Land Shortcuts. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me and I respond when I can. And we're on Twitter at Canada Land. Manisha, where can people find you? 
uh, Manisha Krishnan on Twitter. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. This episode is produced by Katie Jensen. Syndication is handled by Russell Gregg. If you like what we do, please support us. In France, in the 13th century, a teenager ascends the throne. He seems calm, collected, and as it happens, drop-dead gorgeous. But looks can be deceiving, and no one is ready for the death, destruction, and chaos that lie ahead. Step inside the reign of one of the Middle Ages' most cold-blooded rulers on This Is History Presents The Iron King. Available wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com <laughs>